Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, a podcast that's a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran, my co-host as always, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Our guest today, Stephen Wingate, a returning author, and we've been talking about his novel, The Leave Takers, that has the, at the heart of it, it's a love story, but the two protagonists are mired in so much grief and trauma. They've both lost so much, their parents and... Jacob has lost his sibling Daniel and as we heard in the broadcast version of this Stephen you yourself have suffered a a lot of loss and and you said you lost your father when you were 10. I remember speaking with another author Colm Tobin who has also written about loss in many ways and he said that was influenced from him losing his father. I think he was at the age of 10 as well and he said what happens when you lose a parent at that age is you become unmoored because your anchor is gone and it's it's an incredible experience that many people have but we don't have to talk about and the long-lasting impact of that I mean how, how much obviously you've written about it through your your work in, in writing but just in terms of you now as an adult and as a father how much does 10 year old Stephen Wingate who lost his dad come come through every day in, in every way uh, and um, the longer I go and the, the older my kids get and the more aware they are, they're 16 and 14 now, uh, it becomes increasingly important for me to get across to them that, you know, some of the ways that dad is that aren't like, that may not seem normal, uh, you know, there, a lot of it has to do with losing his own dad when he was really young and, and being forced to, uh, kind of create my own anchors uh, and it's because that that big anchor of my father was gone and I was rudderless I was just cast about it was a very strange family situation uh, and uh, you know the first few anchors you make probably don't work very well when you're making them on your own as a 10 year old they you, know, you put them down you think okay this anchor is gonna work I'm gonna I'm gonna find a place in the world and it, everything changes and the anchor doesn't work and you, you have to build a new one you have to build more uh, so it's something that I'm increasingly aware of as I am a, f- a father and the deeper I go into fatherhood and now here my kids are off starting the journey into adulthood and you know th- I think it's important for me to have them know you know th- these little things that, that dad does that annoy you well he's working on them and here's where they come from you know, for instance, the big thing for me is I really like order, uh, and uh, I like order because in my youth, chaos meant failure and like everything's falling apart and you don't know what's coming next. Uh, and so I like to have that stability. And maybe Dad's a little more ordered than some other dads, and has a little less tolerance for chaos because still in the back of the mind is that ten-year-old who's who's worried, who's scared who is is rudderless and knows it was it a big thing then when your kids turned 10 and when you saw them at the age that you were when you lost your dad it was huge it was uh, and one of the things that uh that i've done creatively that's not a book uh but is a is a digital project because i went through a digital phase um this was called daddy labyrinth and it's an interactive memoir it's an interactive digital memoir and it's built on a software out of the university of southern california that i encountered in beta it's called scalar uh, and if you just went to daddylabyrinth.com you would you would find your way to it but it's all 
about me, my life with my father and my life as a father. And when I got to the age or when my kids got to the age when things started going wrong for me, I, I realized, holy cow, I've got to somehow deal with this because as they say, if you don't deal with it, you just pass it straight on to people. And that felt like the biggest project of my life beyond anything I can do artistically is to not pass on the garbage that flowed downstream to me. That's way more important than anything I can do as an artist. That's very interesting. You know, I, I, I as a father, I, I got some of the same feelings. I came from my, neither one of my parents died, but, um, it was not a good marriage. They ended up divorced. There was a lot of issues that I had to be very conscious. Like I don't want to, you know, I went through a lot. I don't want my daughter to go through a lot. And I had the only way to do it is to start figuring this out, to start confront it. And, um, so I was curious though, for you, like Jacob forms this website where he can find other people in Mm -hmm. his situation as an adult. Have you, looked for people or people have you had relationships with people um who had a similar situation where their parent a parent had died at a young age or do you just see that in people sometimes i mean what is is there a radar almost in that situation there is almost a radar you you can i can feel it sometimes and sometimes i'm wrong sometimes i'm right but when i meet people who have had that kind of early family loss uh there's there's a bond there's there's something that we understand about each other's lives. And it's about that rudderlessness and finding or not finding uh, a path toward, a, toward some kind of a self. So yeah, I can, I can feel it. I haven't created an organization for it like, like Jacob has, but again, there, he is doing these things that are extreme versions of uh, things that I've felt. But I definitely, I don't go looking for people that way. Uh, but yeah, when I find them, it's like, yeah, we, we're simpatico. We understand how that is. One of the big parts of Jacob's life, and Lainey as well, they're both artists. Mm. And Jacob is a sculptor. And you go into incredible detail about the process of, I'm not even going to say the terminology correctly, but, you know, creating the casts and then pouring the bronze. or you know. But there's a Japanese technique mm. that he uses. So are you a sculptor or, you know, why did you want to go so far into the details of how he creates his work? I've always wanted to be a sculptor uh, and even have like tried my hand at it, but you know, I, I just don't have the resources to really do it well. It's very equipment intensive uh, and time intensive. Uh, what he does um, is what's called lost wax, wax casting. So you make the mold, and you and it has the, the wax pours out, so you can have space for the bronze, and it's very intense and, and quite ancient. It's really ancient. It's before the Greeks, uh, they were doing it in, in Nigeria way before then, uh, and making molds out of sand. So, uh, and the other thing, uh, the Japanese uh, thing that he does, it's called the anagama. So an anagama is typically a kiln built into a um, into a hillside and it a fire goes on for several days and it it creates natural uh, glazing from the ash uh and i, I love art i i kind of want to be an artist in a way I, i've gotten myself uh involved in words and i'm also really interested in, sometimes in just like letting go of words and not thinking about them and doing things with my hands uh and so sculpture is kind of like this alter ego 
that I got to explore uh, through Jacob to, to really uh, just kind of put myself in his shoes and see what would it be like to, to not have to be working with words all the time. And of course, as I'm doing this, I'm working with words. <laughs> but uh, just imagining uh, what it is. Lainey, I, I get into a little bit less, maybe because I don't have the same feeling about painting that, that she does. But her deal as an artist is she, uh, she paints micro landscapes uh, on glass. <laughs> so she'll take, for instance, a picture of the back of her hand and blow it up and, and do that on glass. So it's kind of emblematic of how fragile she sees her own self. Uh, because if you're painting on glass, you know, it's very easy to fall apart. Uh, but she's also, she looks really, really closely at things. And uh, maybe too closely at things. And, and one of her uh, transformations is that maybe she learns to look at things a little less closely. And she, by the end of the book, she paints different things. Uh, she, she's able to paint the sky. Uh, if I can do another spo spoiler, uh, Jacob, he's interested in bronze because, well, bronze lasts. Right? It really lasts. Uh, and he's some one of those unmoored people who really wants to have that lastingness. So through his art, he's trying to create lastingness. I don't know what that says about me writing novels, what I'm, tr I'm trying to create. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure that out in, in post-production. Uh, but... Yeah, I love that that art, I, and I love music. So Jacob's a musician. Almost everybody I write, it seems, is a is some kind of an artist because those, those are my people. It's the people that I've found in my life. They're people make stuff. Yeah, there's a saxophone reference in here as well because there's the what is it the mouthpiece Mouth of a saxophone? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the objects. But I remember in your previous novel, he was a, well, he was a wannabe. We had a broken saxophone. Right? Broken yes. And I couldn't tell whether he was a fantastic saxophone player or he was terrible because he had terrible. such passion. It kind of nearly didn't matter. But do you play the saxophone? I do now. Yeah. And actually that saxophone mouthpiece is a real thing. That's one of the, when my wife read this book, which it took her a long time to read it because she, her mom had just died and she did not really want to touch that book. And, and for good reason, uh, someone else I interviewed said, I'm sorry it took so long, but you know, Someone in my family just died, and I just couldn't read this book for a while. Um, and that's totally understandable. It seems uh, from the responses I'm getting from readers, the, the closer death is to, in, to your life, the more times you have to put the book down and, and come back to it. Uh, but they've all gotten through it, which is great. Uh, there are these Easter eggs that are little pieces of, of my life, my real life, or my family's life that, that end up in the book. And that saxophone mouthpiece is one of them. Uh, it is uh, a Selmer 1950 uh, C-Star mouthpiece for an alto saxophone. And I found it in Salem, Massachusetts and bought it for about three bucks and have carried it and carried it and carried it. And this was in the 90s, 80s that I found that mouthpiece. And at the time, I didn't have any musical instruments to play. I had grown up playing music, particularly the saxophone. Uh, but one of the things that I've done uh, recently is uh, I decided to start getting back into it again because my son decided to start playing the saxophone independently. He wanted to be a Barry sax player, and he's doing it. Uh, and I said, you know, I really love music, and it gives me something very direct to do with my hands to make music. And so I bought myself one of the best purchases I've ever made for myself. It's a Yamaha uh, YDS-150 digital saxophone. And it takes an alto mouthpiece. And I said, hey, I've got this thing. 
that I got almost 40 years ago and I've been carrying around ever since. Secondhand, secondhand object, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, I put it uh, on the sax and it works. And I, I play, I try to play every day. Don't have it with me right now. Uh, but I try to play it every day. And uh, I play a little bit like Tommy from A Fathers in Fire. Just tones, tone poems, picking a few notes that work together. Uh, and so I'm kind of exploring that. And uh, I found some websites that'll tell me if I plug in the notes that I'm playing together, they'll say, oh, okay, you're, you're in a, a B flat, uh, a Doric scale. And I'll say, okay, cool, I'll write that down. So one of my fantasies is when it's time to retire from teaching, I just throw myself a lot more into that because, you know, it's pure joy. And, uh, and I, I, it's not something that I'm ever expecting to go out into the world and say, hey, I'm a sax player, you know, starting, starting in my late 50s. Uh, so it's just pure fun and joy in that, in that music. That's fun. You could be a retired sculptor, saxophone player, and you know, <laughs> take on the world. All the time. I think about that. I would love to just wake up in the morning, you know, do one type of, do some writing, play some music, do some exercise, come back and work on sculptures. I mean, it would be wonderful. It would be very labor intensive. But uh, who knows? In the book, Jacob has not created any art for the year since Daniel mm -hmm. died. And I was wondering... As a writer, you know, do you go through stretches like that? Like where you're – like some writers say, I write every day. And other writers, you know, they'll put out a book and then they'll take a break or things happen in their life. Or, you know, was, I, was, so I was curious, is there any mirroring to your own personal experience at all and that, that, that his inability at that point to, to – um, create art or are you are you pretty steady or what, what's your I'm, I'm pretty steady i believe in writing every day although i think that we can become enslaved to that and end up you know ruining work uh I, I tend to write every day unless there's a reason for me not to and i know that reason in advance for instance right now i'm really not doing much because i'm on the road and we're just traveling around everywhere uh so it's, it's kind of hard to get that done but when i'm settled i'm an everyday writer uh, unless I just declared it a, a vacation. That's, uh, so one thing I don't do is wake up in the morning and say, nah, I don't feel like doing it today. If I have committed, I'm, I'm going to get up and do it. What I do, and, and the reason it takes so long to write my books, is I bounce back and forth between projects. I, I like to have uh, uh, a little momentum going from project to project, uh, and it also kind of keeps me going. So I, you know, I have these phases where I'll write a bunch of prose poems or... Uh, I'll try a script or something, and many of these come to nothing, but they are, they're good for my practice. And I, I really believe that writing is a practice. You just you do it, and the more things you try, the more things you're able to pull off on the page. And so that freedom to, to go into another genre entirely, to, to do some creative nonfiction, to, to do digital work, uh, that, that I find enriching, even though it's a, a, a horrible career move. Uh, I, I don't recommend that. If you're trying to have a writing career, I think you know the, the way things are now. You want to write that one thing and make it your brand, and just keep on doing it. Uh, so I am uh, Exhibit One A of why you should probably not uh, <laughs> uh, write in in four or five different genres. You, you talk about writing in a digital form. So for people who might know that, that's kind of like video games. And you mentioned Daddy Labyrinth. And mm -hmm. last time you were at the Radio Book Club, you talked about. Uh, 
a yes. video game that was set in Boulder by people dating. It was. It was actually. It wasn't a video game. It was a, a interactive fiction game. It's called. It used to be called Boulder People, but now it's uh, got renamed Love at Elevation. That's right. I and it is uh, set in Boulder. It's an interactive uh, digital r romance novel. And I don't know how I got myself into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it was fun to write until uh, it was really time to, to nail it down. And, and uh, then it became really difficult. I, I realized my limitations with code. There was only so much coding I could do. Uh, at the beginning of the process, I could happily work four or five hours a day writing in code. Uh, it was a JavaScript variant. And by the end of the process, I would look at the code for 15 minutes, and then I would need to go lie down for 10 with the, with the curtains closed. Uh, and just it just became too much. So it clearly was not something that I, I could continue doing. But it's out there. It's from a company called Choice of Games. Uh, out of, uh, I think they're in Palo Alto, California. What are your students like at South Dakota State? You know, you talked about culturally South Dakota being so different, but often young people are different than the overall culture, or, or, do, you, or do you feel they, I guess, I guess how, I don't want to say how would you, I don't want you to generalize, but, mm -hmm. but what, are your, what are your relationships with your students? What do, you, what do you think about them? How do they fit in with that whole South Dakota mentality? Well, they're South Dakota kids. They're they're a lot less likely to speak up. They're a lot less likely to have a take right away. Uh, it's you know I taught at uh, CU Boulder for ten almost ten years full time and then you know, part time before that as well. So fifteen years at CU Boulder and there was always something the students had to say. And in South Dakota, it's it's a harder to get things out of them, and it's also um, I think there's a little less exposure to arts that are not really mainstream. So uh, the idea of uh, kind of experimenting with art is, uh, is foreign. But I, every, uh, every semester, practically, I, I'm uh, trying to teach them to just sort of look at work in new ways and, and show them work that allows them to see that everything is permissible. Because there's a sense, uh, and I, I don't think this is just South Dakota. I think this is the way American education is now. Is here's how you do this story. Here's how you write a short story. You have the rising action and the, the inverted check mark. And I show them stories by uh, Donald uh, Bartlemy and say, well, you don't really have to do that inverted check mark anymore. Uh, it's not something that's required. Uh, I love to teach with a, a, a wonderful essay by uh, Robin Black called the, the Answer That Increasingly Appeals, which is, it was actually from a Colorado Review originally. And it's a series of questions and answers that the, that the person does for herself. And she, it just interweaves a, a multiple different themes. And every time I teach that one, uh, my students write like it. So, so if I give them something different, they often they reach out to it and they... Um, they don't have this preconceived judgment of what it's like. They say, oh, wow, you mean you can do that? And, and they go for it. So there's a lot of flexibility. Uh, they don't necessarily have that, that background. They don't come into a creative writing class saying, oh, well, I like Antonin Artaud and, and Jack Kerouac because they haven't heard of these people. Uh, but if I show them a little bit, and, I, and, and then they're, they're in some ways more willing to try than the students who are quote-unquote better educated and more exposed to the art who've already made 
judgments about that are, oh, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like Kerouac, man. Uh, so it, there's something good about that lack of exposure. Uh, it's sometimes frustrating, but uh, if I could give them something, and I, I try not to give them too much, but just give them a little bit just to say there's permission and there are really no rules about your creativity. Well, Stephen Wingate has been our guest at After Hours at the Radio Book Club. He's joined us to talk about his latest novel, The Leave Takers. It's Stephen's second visit to the book club, and we've been delighted to have him. Thank you so much. Fantastic to be here. Thank you. And the the Radio Book Club is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.